Well, it's always fun to see the kids run back to their classrooms. It's always cute to watch them run back. But are you guys ready for a photo of the cutest kid ever? <laughs> oh, almost, not quite. There it is. So this is a photo of me at five years old. Can you guess what I'm doing in this photo? What I'm getting ready for? Perfect, there you go. This was taken on the first day of kindergarten for me, right? So this is a big step for a little guy, okay? You can tell the backpack is almost the size of me, right? <laughs> well, I was the oldest sibling in my family. So for my parents, this was a bit emotional too. It was kind of like, okay, there he goes, you know? Maybe some of the parents in the room today can relate to that kind of feeling. Um, they knew that from now on, I would be going on without them in a way. So that they had prepared me for everything that I was about to do, and now I was gonna step out on my own, and I wouldn't be under their constant supervision, right? Kindergarten, it's a little bit of a mini step. We went for half a day, but still, it was a big step. What they did even to get me ready for the bus was the day before, uh, we had a neighbor that had a bus, so she was a bus driver, and we would take a practice run. We did one day before, so that it wasn't too scary for me on my first day. Uh, so they really cared about me, you know, and, and they tried their best to prepare me to get me ready. Here we have a photo, too, of that moment, right, when I'm getting on the bus for the first time, and I'm off on my own. So a couple things they might have said to me, I think, at the end, when it was just that last moment, they're like, oh, make a friend, you know, learn some new things, listen to your teacher. Maybe you guys can remember that. And for the homeschool parents in the room, you hold on to your kids a little longer, it seems like, right? But no matter how long you hold on to those kids, there's going to come a time, there's going to come a moment when you have to let go. So every parent is faced with this kind of moment, that day where they'll be standing by the door saying your final words of instruction before they step out on their own. This is exactly the moment that we find the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. You'll remember that the church at Philippi is a church that Paul actually planted himself. It's the first church in Europe, right? Crazy to think about that. European history was just totally changed by Christianity, but there was a first church, and it was this church of Philippi. At this point, Europe is really just a pagan's paradise. It's kind of a dangerous world for this Philippian Christian church. And Paul is watching for the first time his fledgling church just take that step out onto the bus, you know? And think back, too, they're kind of on their own. Paul, if you remember, we've talked about this, is in chains when he's writing this letter. Okay? He's imprisoned in Rome, probably. So he's not sure if he's going to even live or if he'll be sentenced to death. These very well could be the last words that Paul ever says to this Christian church. And they're his beloved children, right? So you can see the analogy I'm trying to draw. But I want you to just think for a second, what would he say in this moment? What are Paul's words going to be? Right? And as we think about this context, about this context let's read the scripture for today, it's going to be Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 is where we're starting. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation, 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. That's the word of the Lord. Let's just pray real quick, guys. Our Lord Jesus, we are but children before you. We watch your every move. We rely on your constant provision. Lord, we ask that you would raise us up so we would grow to our full potential like this church at Philippi, Lord. We pray that we can be that first step into the transformation of our own communities. Work deeply in our hearts to will and act for your good purposes. May we shine as stars, lighting the way for many to follow you, Jesus. Amen. So let's dive into the passage here. For the Philippians, it is time to grow up. It's time to grow up. Verse 12 says, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. What can I tell you that this means? Some people have interpreted it wrong. They think that work out your own salvation means earn your way to heaven. Hmm. But that's not what Paul's saying here. And how can I tell you that that's not what Paul's saying? He doesn't mean earn your way to heaven. Because he's speaking to Christians, right? Those who have already been transformed by God, taken out of death and put into life. They've heard the gospel. They've repented from their sins and believed. Some people read this passage the wrong way when they think Paul is saying, earn your way to heaven because they take it out of context. And I want you guys to know the number one rule for interpreting the Bible is to interpret it in its own context. Read the passages around it. Read the chapter around it. Read the whole book, you know? So in order to avoid some of that confusion, I just want to take us back in order to go forward. I want to read a couple more verses for you starting in verse 5. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the context, and it's directly after these words that Paul says in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? So I think this can make a lot more sense if you view it as Paul speaking to people who are already justified by their faith in Jesus. He's not urging us to earn our way to heaven, but he's urging us to live out our faith, right? Which faith? This faith, the faith that he had just been talking about. I mean, if you compare verses 5 through 11 with the Apostles' Creed, right, one of those earliest creeds in the Christian church, it's striking how similar those two are. So you can see that Paul is just giving us the basics, the basics of the Christian faith, of our faith in a bite-sized format, And what's the focus? Is the focus on your works? No. The focus is on Jesus' works. All right? He's saying that good trees produce good fruit, right? So you believe this faith? Work out your own salvation, meaning live out your faith. So in light of Jesus' costly obedience for us, we continue on the path of obeying the Lord. And there's a theological word for this. I want to tell you guys, you might have already heard it. Perseverance. Perseverance. That's what this passage is about. Perseverance 
is what Christians do when they've accomplished great things, right, after believing Jesus Christ. It's through faith that we persevere. It's not believe and persevere. It's you believe, so persevere, right? So how can we possibly think that these Philippians are going to have any chance to persevere, though, without Paul? Because that's the situation we're confronted with. He's sort of letting go. He might be killed. We don't even know. And these are the last words that he has for them. So with such a powerful leader like Paul, I mean, they wouldn't, none of them would have been Christians if Paul hadn't gone to Philippi, right, to preach in the first place. And he's saying, well, hey, I led the way, but I might be gone. You know, I might not be here anymore. How can we ever have any chance without our leader's help? And I want to point out, too, that Paul says the word salvation, right? Ooh, that's a little bit worrisome to people. But if the Philippian church doesn't persevere in the faith, if they swerve and renounce Jesus when the going gets tough, they are not going to make it to heaven. So it is a salvation issue. But let's take a look at a moment at someone who maybe didn't live out his faith, as a kind of example of someone to not follow, okay? I'm not going to say his name just because it's not a personal attack, but it is a real-life example. Who is this guy? Okay, well, this guy is a New Testament scholar, a scholar. He, sorry, he is someone who went to Wheaton College, good so far, right? We've got a couple people from Wheaton College. He went to Princeton Theological Seminary for his MDiv and his PhD, so this guy is a hard-working guy. He's a very smart, smart guy. One of the most educated people on the planet. And at one point in his life, he said, oh, I'm a Christian. He called himself a Christian. He says, man, he had this religious experience when he was a young man, and he was so zealous for the faith that he was even evangelizing other people. Wow. But when he started studying the biblical manuscripts of the New Testament, he didn't have any perseverance. He started to entertain doubts. He stopped believing the things that he had originally professed to believe. He became obsessed with kind of that human side of Christianity. And he didn't believe in the divine side of it anymore. He, now he writes books that just bash the faith. And I want to read off some of these titles to give you some sort of idea. The first book is called Misquoting Jesus. The story behind who changed the New Testament and why. Not a great start. The second book, God's Problem. How the Bible fails to answer our most important question. Guys, what are we doing here if this book fails to answer our most important question? That's what he's saying. Third book, forgery and counterforgery. The use of literary deceit in early Christian polemics. Christians are lying to you. Oh, that's what he's saying. He's a New Testament scholar. It's pretty clear. This guy did not live out his faith. And his lack of the follow-through is now harming everyone else who reads those books and who thinks, oh, this guy, he might be kind of an objective source of information about the New Testament, right? So overall, it's not a good situation. That's the bad. Don't, don't do what he did, right? But how can Paul know that the Philippians won't do that very thing? How can we know in our context that the people we're trying to raise up as Christians won't turn out like this guy did, right? There are some ministry leaders in the room today who are working with young Christians, or there are some parents who are trying to raise their kids Christian in an increasingly pagan world, if there's any possibility that they could turn away from everything we're doing, why are we working so hard to teach them, right? But verse 13 provides us with a long-awaited relief for this problem. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Friends, we can't rely on mere humans to persevere in their faith. If it were up to us, we would just waver and flip-flop according to whatever the dominant culture is of the time. But Paul doesn't place his faith in the Philippian Christians. He points back to God. He says, he's the one we can trust. When everyone around us fails, when there's even New Testament scholars denying the faith, right? We can rely on God to safeguard his people from eternal danger. But notice also, it's not just God kind of out there somewhere, just vaguely pulling the strings, working things for our good. It's God in you. If you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is in you, working in you to will and to act. And Paul is confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? God was working in the Philippian church to transform their hearts and their actions towards good. And that's a huge relief to Christian leaders everywhere. We can just, whew, that's a big weight off of our shoulders. That even if I'm gone, God will be working to build his church. Or if you're a parent, right? You can trust God to work in your kids. Pray for God to work in your kids. You can play your role as a parent, as a leader, right? But God stays with them to see the work to completion. It's not all on your shoulders. But what about our friend, the miseducated New Testament scholar? Is there any hope for him? He didn't persevere in the faith. It seems like God failed in his task. But I would argue there's still hope for this guy too. And why would I argue that? Well, maybe some of you have a personal relationship to this issue, right? You might have a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a friend, or an enemy who just vehemently denies the faith that they professed to believe earlier in their life. But we don't give up hope, even though we grieve for that person. The hope is, ironically, that God was never in that person to begin with. Without God in you, there's no chance of persevering in the faith. It's time for prayers and evangelism in that case, right? Let's try to pray for this person to know Jesus for real this time, right? We have to treat this person as a true unbeliever, right? But there's always hope while they walk on this earth. Let's hope that they have a true and lasting relationship. Because one of the things that this guy said, and he would say it himself, religion to him was an emotional experience. That's all it was. He had this experience, and he thought, oh, I'm a Christian. And then he realized that wasn't real. And he thinks every Christian experience is just an emotional experience that's not real. And that's where he's wrong, right? For all of us who are Christians, we know that our religion is more than just that experience. It's that lasting relationship with the one God, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of our souls. That's what Christianity is. So they need our loving witness if they're people who have gone back on the faith, so-called. But there's always hope for change. I want to bring you guys now to uh, the theme verse for our series. It's Philippians Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So we've been learning so far what it means to kind of live out our faith, to persevere in the faith. We've acknowledged it's God in us who transforms our will and our actions to persevere. We must do this, but it's God in us doing it, right? But Paul has more to add to this final exhortation to the Philippian church. He's saying... 
not just live out your faith, but he's saying live out your faith through joyful obedience to Christ. Ooh, that's a richer, fuller exhortation. Through joyful obedience to Christ. Let's turn to verses 14 to 16 here. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Here we see how to rejoice in the process of perseverance. We're in this together as a church, right? So one of the first things Paul says is, hey, the way you guys treat one another is super important. That is one of our top priorities. It'd be one thing if Paul were to say, do some things without grumbling or arguing. He doesn't say that. It would be another thing to say, do most things without grumbling or arguing. But, you know, here and there, it's okay. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's a high bar. But that's what we're striving for in this church. That's what we strive for. You know, I was meeting one of my professors this week, and we were talking about pastoral counseling. And he said that there can be a lot of dramatic controversies that pastors have to face. There can be a lot of grotesque sins that people deal with. But the number one reason that pastors actually leave the ministry is due to simple conflict in churches. The chief cause of burnout in pastoral ministry is just that kind of mundane, everyday conflict in the church. It just wears them down day after day. They get defeated by that constant onslaught of grumbling and arguing. And Paul's not unaware of the destructive force of ordinary quarrels, right? That's why he says this first. He knows conflict is caustic. Conflict is caustic. And if we aren't careful, it can erode an otherwise godly church. So what do we do here? Well, when you're in your homes, right? When you're with your family, rejoice in Christ. Don't bicker and fight among each other. Or when you're in small group, rejoice in the word and in fellowship, right? Don't seek to start or continue those arguments that just aren't going anywhere with people. Or maybe if you're talking to Pastor Brian after he just preached a sermon, right? Rejoice with him in the gospel. Don't try to pick out those two or three words that he could have said better. Seek to be at peace with your church family as much as possible. And I get there's hard conversations that we need to have. But Paul is telling us, just do everything without grumbling or arguing. You can have a constructive conversation without grumbling and arguing about something difficult. And look what that'll do for us, right? You continue reading. When we love one another well, when we live out our faith through joyful obedience to Christ, we will become blameless and pure, true children of God who not only hear the words of Jesus, right? It's not just like in one ear, out the other. Oh, I came to church today and I'm gone the rest of the week. I don't even think about it. No, we hear the words of Jesus, but then we follow his commands. Jesus, his commands. And what does he command of us, right? I thought he was all about love. He does have a commandment, but here it is. <laughs> My command is this, love each other as I have commanded you. That's John 15, 12. Obedience to Christ is love one another. And obedience to Christ, loving one another, is actually what the rest of the world around us can see then. And that's a, a key component of this. I think in order to love one another... It's got to start from the heart. But it can't stay in your heart, right? If you supposedly love your family, if you supposedly love your friends and your church, and then you go out and you treat them horribly, 
and everyone else is like, ooh, yikes, and they kind of step away from that guy. That's not loving your neighbor, and that doesn't show a great witness. Nobody sees the love of Christ in that way. You might really have a heart of love for them, but it doesn't show in those moments, right? So there's two parts of that. We have to love them from that heart, but we also have to act well. That's just what people are going to see around us. We want them to see that light of Christ. The world is out there just kind of fumbling around in that confusion. I mean, there's a lot of confusion in the world. They don't know left from right. They don't have love for one another, and they certainly don't act like it. But then the church appears, and it's just like this constellation of shining stars in the, in the bright, or sorry, in the night sky. And man, does that fill a longing in their heart. When they see that love in action, they're like, whew, I wish I had that, right? They're intrigued. They want to see more. They want to come and be a part of this. So that's what I would urge you guys to do. Love one another as Christ has loved us, right? But I have one final point on living out our faith through joyful obedience. And that's holding firmly to the word of life. He talks about this in verse 16. Holding firmly to the word of life. There's two ways we can kind of interpret this one. One is the Bible. That's God's word. Holding firmly to the word of life. Hopefully this whole sermon is kind of an example of, here's how you do that. Because we're reading every word in this book. Every word. And we read it humbly. We're not trying to kind of twist around God's word to mean what we want it to mean. And to use it to our advantage. But we're holding on to God's word, letting it transform us. So that we more and more, think God's thoughts, right? That's the first way you can take this, word of life. Second way you can take the word of life is Jesus. Jesus is the word of life, right? We hold on firmly to our Savior because we know he's the one and only Savior of mankind. If you think back to the Gospels, there's that point in Jesus' ministry when he had said some tough stuff, you know? People were like, oh, I don't know about this guy, and they stopped following him, a lot of the, a lot of the disciples. And he, he turns to Peter and he says, are you going to follow me? Or are you going to leave me too? And Peter replies to him, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what we can say with the Apostle Peter, right? To whom shall we go? Jesus. We hold on firmly to Jesus. So we've kind of arrived at the end of the passage here. Paul finishes verse 16 by saying, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run or labor in vain. And are there any parents in the room, let's just show of hands maybe, who are proud of their kids? And don't worry, they're downstairs, so they won't, they won't know if you... Okay, I mean, this is what I thought would happen. We have a lot of parents that are proud of their kids, right? Or, I don't know if you guys do this, but do you post photos of your kids on social media? A lot of photos of your kids? Too many photos? Of, hey... A lot of people do this, right? That's just a natural thing. Sometimes you see parents that are new parents go from having you know, vacations or their pets on their social media feed to all of a sudden they had a kid. Oh, now it's baby, 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 baby. And this happens so much that people who were like, I'm kind of tired of seeing baby photos, as much as it's a very cute thing, there was an app that they made called Unbaby Me. <laughs> Literally, this entire app, all it did was Every time a baby photo popped up, it would switch it to just a photo of something completely different. I don't know what it was. Cats, buildings, anything at that point. And, you know, I can sympathize with the unbaby me people, 
But I also think it's just, it's totally natural for parents to want to boast in their children, right? That's totally natural. They've sacrificed countless hours and energy on the success of their kids. They've given up of their own life, right, for this child. And that's truly an honorable and a sacrificial act. So when their child flourishes in life, right, parents are naturally just filled with joy. God graciously allows the parents to see the success, the fruits of their labors as the child grows stronger and more independent. Well, Papa Paul over here, he's simply saying that he will get to see that joy one day, right? He's working for a great cause, and he will get to see the fruits of his labors. Even though the work that he's doing, it's not quite as visible as the things that we do with our kids today, right? It's not quite as visible, but on the day of Christ, it will be. That's a beautiful thing. And this day of Christ, there was already a day of Christ, right? That first day of Christ was when he came, became man, right? Second person of the Trinity, as the incarnation. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. He died on a cross for our sins. He took the penalty so that we don't have to bear the punishment anymore. And then he rose from the dead. That's the resurrection. And he went to be with God at the right hand of God the Father. That's the ascension. So that first day of Christ, that, we look to the past. That happened. That's the faith we believe in. What's the second day of Christ? The second day of Christ is coming. And that's the second day when the hidden spiritual things that have been going on all the while, right, will be made manifest. All of these things that God is working towards to his glory will ultimately culminate on this second day of Christ that Paul looks forward to, right? What's the end? Eternal souls made perfect for the glory of God. That's what Paul's looking forward to. And he's looking forward to seeing that for himself. Not from his own power, but God's power working in people to make eternal souls made perfect for the glory of God. And the encouragement for you guys today, maybe, you know, you can relate to the difficulty of the work that you do with these younger Christians, with these kids, but we don't have to run the hamster wheel just forever. It's not a constant, oh, we got to do this, we got to do that, it never changes. There's a day where it's set, and we are looking forward to that day. That's what Paul's rejoicing in. So we can rejoice not just in obedience to Christ as we persevere, but we can rejoice in discipling other people, knowing that the perseverance will result in these eternal souls made perfect. So he's looking forward to that, and I would encourage you guys to look forward to that day as well. So I want to conclude here my message. What is the message that Paul leaves with his Philippian church, right? What is the thing that he says to them in potentially his last words as they step out on their own? Live out your faith through joyful obedience to Christ. That's his encouragement. That's his exhortation. He is urging us to do that. And this would be the main point of the sermon. If you wanted to write anything down, I would say, write this down. That's what Paul wants us to do. He reminds them first of the gospel that they've believed, the Messiah they've followed, and then he urges them, live out your faith through joyful obedience to Christ. He knows it's God at work in them through the Holy Spirit, both to will and to act, so he doesn't need to micromanage them. He just casts them into that loving care of God. Christians, avoid all grumbling and arguing. And when you have that outward unity of the church, it reflects that inward spiritual unity that we have in Christ. This manifest obedience 
It shows the true heart of the godly, and it shines like stars in the night sky. Christians, we hold fast to the word of life, both the Bible just in general and Jesus specifically. Paul is looking forward to that day of Christ when all will be made right, and the glories of spiritual transformation will be made manifest in all the earth. Let's pray. Oh God, we love you, and we love other people. Though we have been transformed, we just acknowledge how difficult it can be to do everything in love. Please continue to work in us through your Holy Spirit. Shape our hearts to love you more and bring our bodies into submission to the great works that you have for us to do. Let our minds be fixed on Christ. And may we hold firmly to his words so that we persevere to the very end of our lives. Grant us the desire and the power to live out our faith through joyful obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.